0: Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from two places. First, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll be in Daniel 7. Here now, the word of the Lord says, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. In Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14. Daniel 7:13 through14, "I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then please turn to Mark chapter 9. Verses 2-13 through 13 for our New Testament reading. Mark 9, 2-13. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, and He led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and thank the Lord for it. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning that we can gather together uh, to worship you, to learn from you, to be fed by you. I pray, God, that you would um, use your word this morning to teach us. That you would bind up our wounds. That you would heal us. That you would give us hope and give us direction and guidance in our life. Lord, we need You, and we ask that You would be here with us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Jones mentioned, uh, my name is Drew Burdett, and I'm the RUF pastor at Oregon State. Um, I'm not from Oregon originally, and for those of you who grew up here in the Pacific Northwest, this might be a shock to you, but um, I don't get soccer at all. Uh, I don't understand the rules. I grew up in South Carolina, and for some reason... When I was a kid, nobody played soccer. Like, there was no school sports, there was no club teams, nobody played soccer. And I was so ignorant of soccer that I thought that nobody in this entire country played soccer until I was in maybe uh, late high school. And so I'm completely ignorant when it comes to soccer. But then I moved up to the Northwest and I found out that people love soccer up here. I lived in Seattle for eight years and I didn't want to be left out. I didn't want to be considered weird. And so I thought, well, I need to get into soccer And uh, I remember early in my time in the Northwest, there was uh, a really important game, it was during the World Cup, and it was Germany versus the USA, and everybody was talking about it, and so I didn't want to miss it. But I don't have ESPN, um, and it was early in the morning, so I didn't know how I could find it on TV. And I finally found it on Desportes, which is the Spanish ESPN channel. And what I learned that day is that I know even less about Spanish than I do about soccer. And, you know, without friends there kind of telling me the rules, what's actually happening, without a commentator speaking to me in my language, I was completely lost. It was just a bunch of people running around a field, kicking a ball. And so after about 30 minutes, I just turned it off and, and started doing something else. And sometimes the Bible can feel like that. You read a passage and you're all excited. You spent some time, you know, to get ready to read the Bible. You open it up, you read it, and then you think, yeah, I have no idea what I'm supposed to make of this. And so you sit there for a few minutes. Maybe you read some study notes and you think, yep, still don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And so you shut the Bible and you go away. And the story of the transfiguration has to be one of those stories, right? There's a lot of things in here that don't make a whole lot of sense. You have Jesus being transfigured. That's not a word that we often use in our normal language. What does that mean? He's transfigured. And then there's these figures from the distant past, right? Moses and Elijah who who show up in the present. Even the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're confused. They don't know what to make of this. But thankfully, thankfully for them and for us, God shows up and He runs commentary on the passage for us. In case we miss what the transfiguration is all about and Moses and Elijah... God shows up and He says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is what the transfiguration is about. Jesus is the beloved Son of God, and as such, we are called to listen to Him. In an attempt to unpack that this morning, I have two questions that I want us to work through. The first question is simply, why should we listen to Jesus? Like, What about Jesus warrants this type of response? And the second question is, what does it even mean to listen to Jesus? So let's start with the first. Why listen to Jesus? Right? We get a lot of news, a lot of things that are vying for our attention. And we live in a time where you can get four different takes on the same event, depending on which news source maybe you listen to. And then we have our own lived experience that we try to take into account and make sense of. At all times, there's multiple ideologies and worldviews that are floating around us and in us, some that we are aware of, some that we are not aware of. But they're all demanding our allegiance. They want us to listen to them. They demand our attention. And so with all of those voices, all of those things that we're constantly listening to or hearing, vying for our attention, we should simply ask, what is so special about Jesus? What is so special about Jesus that would warrant Are listening to him above all of these other voices that we are constantly being bombarded with. The transfiguration of Jesus gives us everything to answer this question, but before we jump into the transfiguration, I want to set this story in its context. Obviously, the context comes right before it's sorry, it's Mark chapter eight, and in Mark chapter eight, it's the Jesus is discussing with his disciples who He is, and what He has come to do. It's the the, the exciting point in the Gospel of Mark where Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ and everybody's excited about that. And Jesus begins to teach them what is the Christ. Because you remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a a position. It's a title. And as such, it needs to be defined. So Jesus begins to teach them what it means to be the Christ, what it means that He is the Christ. And here's what He has to say. This is Mark 8, verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You know, what Jesus is doing here is He's taking these two Old Testament characters that we just read about. Right? You have Daniel 7, the Son of Man, who comes in power and glory and He has given a kingdom without, any, without end. Everybody was excited about Him. And then there's this other guy, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, one who is a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief, one who would be wounded for the transgression of others and suffer greatly for their salvation. And what Jesus does is he conflates these two characters into one as the blueprint for his position as the Christ, right? the Son of Man must suffer many things. And nobody had ever done that before. No one, no scribe, no Pharisee, no teacher of the law had ever put these two people together as the Christ. And so Peter hears this. He's listening to Jesus teach about the Christ. He's just declared you're the Christ. And then Jesus starts defining this position. And what does He do? Well, He is unwilling to listen. He reacts, no way! He even takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus for saying such nonsense. This is the context of the transfiguration. Peter's unwillingness to listen to Jesus' own understanding of the Christ. We're probably not like Peter. We probably are not in the habit of rebuking Jesus for the things that he says. But we know how difficult it can be to listen to Jesus. Because Jesus says some things that are hard for us to do, like pick up your cross and follow Me. He also says things through Him or through His Word that are hard for us to accept. Things like, you're forgiven, or I love you, or you're mine. It's hard to listen to Jesus. So how does the transfiguration help us to listen to Jesus? Well, here's how. On one hand, the transfiguration of Jesus, it reveals to us Jesus' great power. He is capable. He is competent. He is able to save. And on the other hand, it reveals Jesus' great compassion. Not only is He able to save, He's actually willing to save. Now, let's start with His power. Jesus is clearly competent. He is able. This is what this passage shows us. This is verses 2-7 through again. It says that after six days from that discussion, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, and He led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved Son. Listen to him, and let's just get all of the details out in front of us. You know, the story begins with Jesus. He takes his kind of his inner circle, his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, his three of his disciples, and he goes up onto this high mountain to pray. And just as a, an aside, whenever I read "high mountain" in the Bible, I don't know why, I think Big Hill, right? Like maybe he took him up on Chip Ross or something like that to go pray. And so this time around, I thought, well, I'm going to actually look it up. And most scholars think that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on Mount Hermon. Now, that didn't solve the problem for me, so I had to look it up. And Mount Hermon is around 9,232 feet tall. So to put that in perspective, it's somewhere in between Mount St. Helens where the top has been blown off, which is about 8,300 feet, and Mount Jefferson, which is 10,500 feet. So Mount Hermon is right in between those two. It is a high mountain. There's actually a ski retreat resort on top of Mount Hermon in Israel today. And so Jesus goes hiking, I guess, with His friends. He takes them up on this high mountain. We don't know if He makes it all the way to the top or what, but while He's on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. Which means that some sort of change happens to Him. Mark tries to, to, to sum it up this way. He says that His clothes become radiant. Radiant intensely white so as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke, in his account, he says that Jesus' face was altered. It was changed. And Matthew would say that His face actually shone like the sun. That's the transfiguration. Somehow, Jesus is altered. He's changed. He is shining. His clothes are shining. His face is shining before them. And then you get Moses and Elijah who show up. And we don't know how they know that there are Moses and Elijah. We don't know if there were greetings and introductions. We don't know if there were name tags. But we know it's Moses and Elijah. They figured it out somehow. And these would have been Old Testament heroes. We don't know exactly why Moses and Elijah are there. Some people would say, well, Moses is summing up the law and uh, Elijah is representing all the prophets, which may be. But we know that these are kind of Old Testament heroes. These are big deals. Moses was an early deliverer of, Egypt, of, of Israel. Right? He is the author of the first five books of the Bible. He delivers Israel from Egypt. He has his Mount Sinai uh, moment. And then you have Elijah, who is one of the, the greatest prophets. He also delivered Israel from the worship of Baal. And he also has a Mount Sinai experience where he, uh, he hears God's verse, voice and the whisper. And so you can imagine you're Peter, right? and you're excited about the kingdom of God coming. You just learned that Jesus is the Christ. You're a little bit discouraged about His definition of that, but you can work with that. And then you're there on the top of this mountain, and now you have Moses, and you have Elijah, and you have Jesus. I mean, these would have been the men that you know. if you would have asked Peter, James, and John, like, hey, when you get to heaven, who do you want to talk to? They probably would have said Moses and Elijah, right? These were big deals for them. And so Peter has his kind of all star lineup right in front of him Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And he has to be thinking, you know, let's go. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, we are ready. Everything is the way that it should be. But then God shows up and scrambles everything, reinterprets it all for us, and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And by implication, he's saying, not Moses, not Elijah, but Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Now as you hear the story and think about these details, you may be thinking, well, this story sounds familiar in some way. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of parallels between this story and the Gospels and the story we find in Exodus 34. With Moses on Mount Sinai. You know, many of the elements are similar. You've got Moses, obviously, he's there. He goes up on a high mountain, Mount Sinai. God shows up in a cloud and speaks to him. And when Moses comes down off the mountain, you'll remember his face is, is shining, right? It's, it's uh, glowing as he is reflecting the glory of the Lord. And so there's a lot of parallels between these two stories, but there's one glaring difference and the difference is timing you know Moses uh, his face shines and glows after he had been in the presence of God and after the cloud comes and as he go, as God goes away Moses face isn't changed he is simply reflecting the glory of God just as a full moon reflects the glory or the light of the sun But Jesus' face is shining like the sun before the cloud even shows up. Before God is even there. And what the story is trying to highlight for us is that Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God as Moses did. Instead, the light is radiating from Him. As Moses was the moon, Jesus is the sun itself. And here's what the transfiguration reveals to us. Jesus is not an ordinary human being like you and me. Jesus is not even a great human being like Moses or Elijah. Who is Jesus? He is God Almighty in the flesh. As our creed puts it, we believe in one Lord Jesus, the only Son of God, begotten, from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. So in the transfiguration, we see Jesus Christ almost uncloaked as He truly is. God in the flesh. Which means He is all-powerful. He is competent. He is worthy of our trust because of His great power of who He is. And so that's part of the question. We need to know that Jesus is capable if we're going to listen to Him. But the transfiguration doesn't just reveal His power, it also reveals His compassion. But Jesus isn't just able or capable or competent. He is those things, but He is also willing to save. He is patient. Look at verse 8 with me. The text says that, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. When when the cloud and when these famous Old Testament uh, folks leave, when the radiant clothes and the glory of God is all veiled back again, there's just Jesus. And the, the disciples had to scratch their heads a bit because they had to make sense of this. Jesus is their friend. Jesus is their teacher and their master. He's the one who had given them nicknames, right? Sons of Thunder for James and John and the Rock for Peter. He fed with them. He fed them. He lived with them every day. And they had to put that together with the fact that this is God's beloved Son. The one who is radiating the glory of God from him. Who is greater than Moses. Who is greater than Elijah. He was the friend of sinners and tax collectors. They had seen these people flock to him. He was the man that they had seen touch lepers and heal them. A man who who spoke of being rejected and killed. A man who would later say he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many the transfiguration it highlights his power but it also highlights his great compassion and his love i mean the mere fact that jesus who was fully god was standing on the mountain with peter the one who had rebuked him just days before shows his great compassion it shows his patience It shows His love. It shows His willingness to be with ordinary people like you and me. The transfiguration keeps with this theme in the New Testament that Jesus isn't just able to save, He is also willing to save. He wants to save. Do you know how how Jesus describes His own heart? In Matthew 11, He says this, Come to Me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dane Ortland he sees this passage as another unveiling. Just as on the transfiguration, we have this uncloaking, this unveiling, and you see Jesus as He truly is in His essence. He says in this passage, Jesus is unveiling to us His heart. Here's what he has to say, and you have this quote in your your bulletin. He says, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer down into the core of who He is, we are not told that He is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that He is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that He is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, His surprising claim is that He is gentle, and lowly in heart. So what is it about Jesus that warrants that we listen to Him? What is it about Jesus that sets Him, part, sets him apart from all the other voices, whether they are without or within? What's well, these two things? It's His amazing power on one hand that has been coupled with His great compassion. And we need to see both if we're going to listen to Jesus. If He's just powerful, but He's not compassionate, we might be afraid of Him, but we're never going to give Him our hearts. We're never going to be vulnerable with Him and trust Him when when push comes to shove. On the other hand, if He's just compassionate, but He's not powerful, we're going to think, well, I like what He has to say, but if I don't like what He has to say, I'm going to walk away from it. But when you have both of these things together, both power and compassion, it warrants that we listen to Him. You know, I I cannot think about the story of the transfiguration of Jesus without thinking about Gandalf the Grey and Bilbo Baggins. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with these stories or not, but in uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, you have this wonderful scene where little little Bilbo Baggins, little, little hobbit, right? it's his 111th birthday, and he's going away. And so he slips on his magical ring, he disappears, And the scene I want you to think about is when Gandalf the Grey goes to his little hobbit hole and he confronts him. Because Bilbo is there and he's packing up his bags, he's getting his stuff, he's ready to get out of town. And apparently they had had uh, an agreement that when he left, he'd leave the ring behind. And so uh, Bilbo is getting ready to head out the door and Gandalf shows up and he says, Bilbo, where's the ring? And he says, oh yeah, I left it on the table for you. Oh, wait, no, it's here in my pocket. And he reaches his hand in his pocket and he starts thinking about this ring, which he calls his precious, right? And he says, well, now that the time comes to it, I do not want to let it go. In other words, nope, I'm not going to listen to you, Gandalf. And they start arguing, and Gandalf says, give me the ring, we've agreed to this. Basically saying, listen to me. And Bilbo gets angry. And he goes, his hand reaches to his sword, And he is ready to take on Gandalf the Grey, right? For his ring. He will not listen to him. And in the scene, both in the book and in the movie, whichever you prefer, Gandalf says something like, "Uh, It will be my turn to get angry soon, and you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. And in that moment, at least in, in the movie, he swells inside, and there's these, you know, peals of thunder, and lightning is flashing, and you're seeing the power of the wizard compared to little old Bilbo, right? And he's shocked. He's afraid. But as soon as the power goes away, he shrinks back down and there is Gandalf with his wrinkles, his old friend that he has known for years. And it's in that moment when he sees both the power of Gandalf coupled with the compassion of his friend who he knows is not trying to play him, that he listens to him. He says, "I I am your friend. I am here to help you, not to hurt you. And Bilbo takes the ring, he drops it on the floor, he listens to Gandalf, and he walks out the door. And the same is true for us in Jesus. To truly listen to Him, to be able to do the things that He calls us to do that maybe we don't want to do, we have to see both His power and His compassion. The beauty of the Incarnation, but even more so the beauty of the Transfiguration, is that we see that Jesus is different from us in every way we can think of, and yet He is still one of us. He is with us and for us. He is full of power and strength and wisdom, and He is slow to anger, present with us when we fail, gentle and lowly in heart. There is no one like Jesus. And He is the only person who warrants our undivided attention and our hearts. And so Jesus, God says, this is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now that's why we should listen to Him. But what does it even mean to listen to Him? Now I've only got two things to say about listening to Jesus this morning. I want to talk about what, what does listening look like when it begins? And kind of what's the end goal of listening? Uh, so the first thing is this, listening to Jesus begins when we simply respond to what He is saying. We know we're listening to Jesus when we begin with responding. And the key word here is responding. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I've been helped by different counselors who have told me that there's a difference between reacting and responding, right? You know the difference. You know, when somebody, when somebody says something like, hey, I think you were a jerk to the server, what do we do? Do we react or do we respond? Reacting just looks like being defensive and say, well, um, I think you were a jerk for blah, 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 or, well, they did this, what would you expect for me to do? We just simply React. But responding is when we say, really? Well, why do you think that? Tell me more. Was I doing that? We know that we are listening to Jesus when we take the time to respond. Before we react to what He says, we process through it and we listen to what He says in His Word. And we see the disciples doing just this as they walk down that high mountain with Jesus. Look at just verses 9 and 10. It says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. You know, it's it's amazing. After all of the the amazing things they have just seen and heard, they heard the audible voice of God, they saw these figures from the old, they saw Jesus changed. What does Jesus do? he takes them right back to the conversation he had just a week before. That the Son of Man has to rise from the dead. And this time, Peter's hearing the same thing. Instead of taking Jesus aside and saying, hey, didn't we just talk about this a week ago and rebuking Him again? says that they began to listen. They processed in their hearts what he was trying to say. That is the first step of listening. Instead of reacting, we respond. We we take in His words. We try to see if we know what He is trying to say. We ponder them. We don't simply reject them or dismiss them out of hand. Listening means that we slow down so that we can respond. When you think about the things that God says either through Jesus or about Jesus in His Word, what would your life, what would your discipleship, what would your hearts look like if you slowed down and processed those things. Follow Me. Or He tells us that we are adopted as His sons and daughters. That He is our big brother, as it were. Or about what Scripture tells us that we are not justified by our works. We don't merit salvation. We actually have demerited it. But we are justified in His blood that His grace is freely offered to us. Or if we slow down to listen to what He has to say about our anxieties or our fears. You listening begins with simply responding and pondering in our hearts what Jesus has said. That's where it begins, that simple, responding. Now, the end goal of listening is when we actually accept what He says as truth and live out our lives accordingly. Um, A couple years ago, I was... Uh, in the airport and I'm always a little bit anxious when I'm when I'm flying or when I'm traveling and my name got called over the like intercom system which sent me on like you know panic alert here and I was supposed to go up to the counter so I went up to the counter and uh, they said let me see your ticket and I gave them my ticket and I thought oh no I'm not gonna make it on my, this flight and they said well you've got a new ticket and they handed me back the ticket and I retreated back to my chair and sat down just relieved that I was able to get on the plane. And so finally I looked down and thought, okay, I was in like 34B, you know, the back of the plane where I belong. And I looked at the ticket and it said that I was in 1B, which I realized I got bumped to first class. And so they call for everybody in, you know, first class to board the plane. I got up awkwardly, thought this is, this is wrong, right? This is, I did not pay for this ticket. Uh, I did not merit this. And so I go and I get on the plane uh, and I sit down. Sure enough, 1B, I had the ticket and I felt so awkward. I started looking around at all the other, you know, guests and I thought they deserve to be here. You know, it's clear they paid for the first class ticket. I assume they were thinking about me like this guy screams row 34B, right? What is he doing up here? And so I thought, you know what? I didn't pay for this ticket. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pretend i'm gonna live as if i'm in 34b i'm just gonna sit in this seat it's just another seat and so when the flight attendant came up and they said uh can we get you a drink i said yes i can have a water please um and then i started thinking about i'm sitting there and i'm like when am i ever going to get to sit in row 1b again they don't know that i didn't pay for this ticket i have the ticket in my hand it has my name on it i belong here and so i waved down the flight attendant i was like you said there was a drink menu and it was the best flight that I've ever been on. It was great. Right? It was hard for me at first to accept it. I just thought, okay, I'm going to believe it. I'm sitting here, but I'm not going to really enjoy all the perks or the privileges that come with this ticket. Listening is like that. Right? It begins by simply responding. Let me get the information. Let me get it right. What are you trying to say? But the end goal of listening is accepting it as truth and living into the new reality. You know, Peter didn't get all of this overnight. It took him a while to understand it and accept who Jesus was as the Christ. Right? A week before, he rebukes Jesus for his definition. Then he's told the same thing again. He ponders it in his heart. He begins to respond. But if you fast forward 30 years or so, you can hear Jesus' own words in the words of Peter. Peter. I want to read you just a short passage from 1 Peter. And what Peter is doing here is he is riffing off of Isaiah 53. The same passage that he rebuked Jesus for using years before. This is 1 Peter 1, 21-24. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins and His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. The end goal of listening is accepting what Jesus says as truth and living life accordingly. And so as you think about your own walk with Jesus, the things maybe that that you're trying to listen to Jesus about, whether it's from what you've been reading about, what you've been studying about, is there anything that Jesus has said in His Word? Or that the Word has said about Jesus? Either who He is, or what He has come to do, or how He wants us to grow or change, or how He wants us to think about ourselves, that to be honest, you've been either dismissing, not thinking about it, or rejecting it flat out. This is my beloved son, God says. Listen to him. Respond, take in those words, figure out what they mean, and then move towards accepting them as truth in your life. Who is Jesus? He is the powerful son of man of Daniel 7, who comes with a kingdom that will have no end. But he is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, that we might truly live. Embrace him and learn to listen to all that he says because you will find no one as competent and as compassionate as him. No one who is both able and willing to save. And this is what Christians, what followers of Jesus have been basking in and celebrating for thousands of years. I want to end with just the first and last verse of the great hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power. He is able, He is able, He is willing, doubt no more. And then it ends, Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of His blood. Venture on Him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do Helpless sinner is good. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the story of the transfiguration that um, sometimes we read it and then we just want to move past it because we don't get it. Yeah, Lord, it is a beautiful thing because it highlights to us both Your power that You are I like us. You are holy and wise and capable. You are the, the creator of the world, and you're the creator of our own hearts. And yet you're also the compassionate one. You're the one who knows us, knows us well enough to give us nicknames, who is with us, who entrusts himself to us, who, who loves us. And Lord, may these two things, both your your compassion and your kindness, that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that you are the great I Am. Lord, may that win our hearts, woo our hearts to listen to you. Lord, give us the faith that we need to to trust you, to hear you, to accept those things you say, and to live life differently. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.